I'm Vic Chakraborty, and on this week's business podcast, we're talking about bankers' bonuses. JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, RBS, and the rest are preparing to fire the gun on this year's bonus season. And with investment bankers in line to receive the largest payouts of their careers, we ask, is there anything that can be done to curb this excess? Will the chance of super tax really lead to an exodus from the city? And is there anyone out there who will stick up for the world's most maligned profession? Plus, after the Cadbury's board recommends the company's £12 billion sale to American food giant Kraft, we ask, has a British confectioner rolled over too cheaply? This is The Business from The Guardian. Well, there's loads to get stuck in today, and I'm joined by a tip-top panel to help me do it. Here in the pod is Dan Roberts, Guardian Head of Business, Jill Trainer, our banking correspondent, economics editor Larry Elliott, and flown in at great expense, Richard Adams from our Washington Bureau. Thank you all for being here. And we should say to any Guardian bean counters listening that, Richard, you happen to be in London anyway. Yes. Because it's excess we're talking about today, and before we get too serious, we thought we'd start with a bit of music. Yes, that's the bard of barking, Billy Bragg, with Waiting for the Great Leap Forward. The British singer-songwriter says he's withholding his taxes until Alistair Darling curbs the excessive bonuses at Royal Bank Scotland, and he's not alone in being angry. The big US institutions are preparing to pay their staff their 2009 bonuses, and Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, Citigroup and Bank of America Merrill Lynch are believed to have a staggering $100 billion to dash out. So, Dan, are we still waiting for the Great Leap Forward? I'm afraid we've had the great leap backwards by the looks of things. I mean, it has been a week where we've really felt that um, most of the hope of reform from the last couple of years has has evaporated. Um, We've been reminded just how profitable investment banking is, and we've been reminded just what cost it causes the rest of the economy. I think the contrast of the uh, hostile bid for Cadbury um, succeeding uh, in a week when all these bonuses uh, are being paid will uh, go down like a cup of cold sick. And how do people on Main Street, as we're, we're meant to call them, how, how are they taking bankers' bonuses, Richard? Well, there's going to be a lot of a lot of unhappy people when these sorts of figures are announced. Uh, and Obama is giving his State of the Union address uh, the next Wednesday yeah. on the 27th. Uh, and I wouldn't be at all surprised if he latches onto this because he has begun to uh, use some of the popular anger against the big banks and Wall Street. Uh, and with some of the some of the policies he's announced in the last couple of weeks, so I wouldn't be surprised if if bankers' bonuses pops up very much in the State of the Union. Now there is some kind of tax that he announced last week. How's the reaction to that been? Pretty good. Uh, I mean, not not very popular at all amongst the banks, as you can imagine. Uh, some of whom are talking about legal action to stop it, which really does define cheek. Uh, but I think uh, elsewhere, uh, he is actually for the first time tapping into a mood uh, which he hasn't done very successfully up until now. OK, Jill, you're our liaison officer with the banking community. How, how are they responding to the amount of money they've been given out this time around? They I'm not sure I've ever been called a liaison <laughs> officer before for anything, but um, I shall perhaps try and take it as a compliment. I'm not sure. Um, the, um, <clears throat> the reality is that um, bankers are getting good payments this year. What's interesting is that they're all enjoying talking about the fact that they're getting the money, but they're getting it spread over three years and they can, you know, there's lots of jokes going around the city about 
you know, it would be fine if I could pay in three years' time, that type of thing. But the reality is that the numbers are large. I mean, we've talked before on this podcast about how it has been an extraordinary year for investment banking, particularly if you're a bond trader, anything to do with commodities, you know, obviously following on from today for anything to do with M&A, especially involved in Cadbury. So, you know, it's, um, it, it's been a, it's, it's a good year. But there are rows going on inside investment banks. Goldman Sachs, for instance, is riddled with disputes about how to deal with this tax. They is were meant a, to make the charity their, thing? Uh, it, no, it's actually to do with how to deal with the UK bonus tax. They were meant to make their bonus announcement yesterday and had to tell staff that they are now delaying it until January the 28th because they can't make their minds up about what to do. Today, bankers at Credit Suisse, if you're, if you're one of the four managing directors at Credit Suisse, you've been told today that your bonus is going to be 40% lower than any managing director anywhere else in the group so that you can deal with the bonus tax. So there are lots of things going on in the city right now that don't make this bonus round as straightforward as any other one I've ever written about. What about all the stuff that we were hearing about getting paid in gold bars and all this that? Well, you know, the gold bar stories have gone round and round for years. But, I mean, uh, the, the Treasury has learned tricks in the past and closed down a lot of these loopholes about how you're going to get paid your bonuses. It, it used to be – at one point there was something to do with getting paid in um, some strange rare metal at one point was one of the things that um, people wanted to get paid in. Um, the reality is there are lots of stories around about people trying to get around the bonus tax, about trying to defer payments and things, but those stories are now dying down and turning much more into stories about how banks are going to deal with the, with the tax. Larry, we've had the uh, angry words from the Chancellor and the Prime Minister, and we've had attacks on bonuses, as Jill's been telling us. It doesn't seem to be working, does it? I don't think it will work until somebody finds a way of taxing away or regulating away the very high profits that the banks are making. That's the reality. They're making exceptionally high profits, largely as a result of what the government has been doing both directly and indirectly and until the government decides it's going to take action to to stop that then the bonuses will be paid because the, the profits they're making are very very high i mean there, there are two big ways in which the, the uh, investment banks have benefited from the from government action one is directly the, the, the support operations for the banks that were introduced in late 2008 and early 2009 and the second is the action to pump up the bond market through quantitative easing which has actually made trading in bonds virtually the easiest thing in the world to do because bond prices have just gone in one direction throughout the whole of 2009 so it's just been like picking cherries off a tree as far as the investment bank but follow, follow your argument through and then if markets turn back or we withdraw quantitative easing or rates go up or any of those sorts of things and that just sorts the issue out doesn't it if raise that, the cost of capital for banks, and that's the end of that. Well, that's one way of doing it. You can you can raise the cost of capital for bank. You you can introduce much tighter capital additive ratios, or you can split the banks up and into 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 boring investment banks and in, into boring commodity banks and, and and utility banks. And you can you can outlaw certain forms of activity if you want to do. But I mean, I think that if if you want to take a long term uh, action against the banks, then you need to think about some of those things rather than just a one-off windfall tax, which is essentially what Alistair Darling has done. I mean, this is just a one-off tax to assuage a degree of public anger this year, but it doesn't actually address the longer-term issues. Is it a one-off thing that you dislike, or would you rather have a kind of Obama sort of nine-year fee that will be extracted for the best part of a decade from the banks? I thought the Obama plan was pretty good, actually. I I would favour that rather. I think that what we've got here is a real stopgap solution to it, and I think that what Obama's done is actually quite good both from a macroeconomic and from a populist point of view. I mean, it's actually tapped into the public anger and it's also a long-term way of extracting about $100 billion 
from the US banking community and that will have an impact on their ability to, to lend stupidly over the coming years. So I think that it's, it's populist, it gets the government its money back at a time when the government's lacking money and it's also going to have a macroeconomic impact on, on, on the lending potential of Wall Street banks. You've called me the liaison officer for the banks and now I'm becoming <coughs> the liaison officer for the Treasury but clearly the Treasury would argue that Obama's got a different problem to them in that, you know, our government bought shares in banks and hasn't lost money in the way that, they, that the US government is losing through its asset protection scheme because it bought those dodgy assets which is why he needs to reap this 90 billion pounds back i mean our if you were if there was a spokesman from the treasury here they would no doubt be pitching an argument that the bonus tax is aimed at trying to get rid of those excess profits that have built up in the system and that we'll get our money back by selling our shares in the banks it's, it's interesting to note that, okay, Citigroup has reported today and it's still in big trouble, but a lot of the rest of the US banking system is, is, is p- picked itself up much quicker than um, companies like RBS and, and Lloyd's, which is a sign of just how badly off we were. The difference in the US, of course, is the reason why it's structured the way it is, is the Troubled Asset Relief Program, of course, also includes uh, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, and w- which you know both have you know huge... Uh, outstanding liabilities and the US government has pumped in vast amounts of money into them and taken them into conservatorship. I mean, that's the closest parallel to the Northern Rock here, but at a scale 100 times larger. Uh, so the, the way Obama is extracting money from the banks is partly to refund some of that money, which there was no other way that it would get it back. I mean, the US uh, still has going to have a fundamental problem at the end of this about what they do about those two. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are, are such large parts of the US mortgage market, but you know there's going to have to be a solution because their current, basically, government ownership just doesn't make sense. This is The Business with Aditya Chakraborty. So, is this latest outpouring of anger just a one-off bit of rage? When we're out of recession, will things be any different? Here's author and journalist John Lanchester. I have a friend who's an economist in France, and he's been saying since autumn 2008 when it blew up, he keeps saying, it's over. That's his line about, you know, the whole, the whole culture of um, craze bonuses and um, the city effect. I mean, you know, it's astonishing. They take half the profits of banks, of investment banks, goes in pay to the staff. That's an amazing figure. Um, it's unlike any, I think it's unlike anything in the world except um, elite sport. So in, in effect, the bankers are saying that they are, you know, Cristiano Ronaldo of adding up. And uh, I'm not sure it's a sustainable model that once that people have got so angry about it, which then in turn will inform shareholders getting angry about it. And it's when the shareholders who actually own the banks um, start to say, hang on a minute, this isn't actually a free market in bankers' pay setting this. This is, in fact, a cartel or a conspiracy. And I think that's the thing that will change it. But the, if you look over what's happened since the collapse of Lehman Brothers in uh, autumn 2008... The huge amount of public dis- disturbance and public anger of what's happened. Massive recession, uh, which will be paid for uh, in part by tax rises and in large part by spending cuts. But where's the mechanism that you see for actually bringing public anger to bear upon the bankers? Uh, it's indirect. It's via um, shareholder outrage. But don't forget that you know a lot of the, the owners of banks are ineffectively, uh, for the most part, um, large financial institutions, many of them pension funds. I mean, there's this bizarre circularity that um, although we don't own the privately owned banks, a lot of the time an awful lot of people have uh, pension plans, even um, you know public sector pension plans, who, which are in turn invested in things like uh, bank shares. So I think it's when the owners 
which by a circular and indirect route... Is me and you. It's not exactly us, but kind of in a way it sort of is us. Uh, and I think they're the people who can affect change. I think bankers, the people, as it were, popular anger in and of itself will have, has no effect, but I think it's the refraction of it you know, through other mechanisms. Larry, it's over. That's not true, is it? <coughs> well, I, um, I take issue there with all three things that he said. One, it's not over. We're back to where we were. It's business as usual. Two, I don't detect any great sense of public anger. I think what public anger there was against the banks was, was, was diffused by the uh, cash for expenses scandal in the Commons, and it was the best thing that ever happened to the banks was the Daily Telegraph breaking that story and running with it so hard because any, any public anger that there was uh, then... Um, was completely lost. I mean, I don't detect people going down to Canary Wharf and protesting outside Goldman Sachs or or, or Morgan Stanley or, or wherever. I mean, any of these. I mean, I don't detect any great sense of public outrage that, that's meaningful in a political sense. And you know, the idea that there's going to be some sort of shareholder revolt against this thing. You know, where is that going to come from? I, you know, people have been talking about shareholder activism for as long as I've been doing financial journalism, which is far too long, and it just never, never materialises. Yes, of course. You know, the the, the the excessive profits and the excessive bonuses are actually money that should be in my pension pot. But I don't, I, I don't expect any, any great wave of shareholder act, activism to change that. If, if we're going to change it, it's going to be changed at a government level or a G20 level. It's going to be, it's going to be done by policymakers at an official level. Don't wait, for heaven's sake, for shareholders to get off their fat bums and do something because they just ain't going to do it. This point about shareholders is interesting because Stephen Hester, the boss of RBS, was before the Treasury Select Committee last week and uh, he was asked by McFall or one of the MPs on that committee, you know, are your shareholders concerned about the amount of bonuses you're paying? And Hester's reply, I, I paraphrase, you understand, was something like, yes, they are concerned because they want to make sure we can pay enough to keep our best people. Um, you know, shareholders would argue that they can't act on their own. I mean, shareholders in the UK can't rein in the investment banks in the US that are making the big bonus payments. So they, there's an unlevel playing field as far as they're concerned. They can't, you know, in the UK, if you're a UK shareholder, you want, your, you want Barclays, RBS. HSBC to compete with the big boys who are on Wall Street. And um, I, I, I'm not thinking this argument is the correct argument, but it's definitely an argument that they make. Dan, Paul Miners uh, has been banging on about the need for shareholders to take a more active interest in the companies that they, they own. John Lanchester seems to be sort of in agreement that actually the, the, sort of the, the, the mechanism will be through shareholder activism. Um, if you look at Cadbury's or you look at banking bonuses or you look at CEO pay in general, that doesn't seem to be true, does it? No, uh, I think that sadly Paul's been fantastic at identifying the problem but hasn't really come any closer to, um, to coming out with a solution. I what mean, would you do then? I mean, Larry's been going on about this far longer than I have, so it, but uh, I, I think we are now having to accept that there needs to be much closer scrutiny and regulation by the state in all sorts of these activities i mean take takeovers um you know there are all sorts of sensible people today suggesting that we should now have a french style veto on um, on on takeovers of strategic british assets in a way that you know a few years ago would have seemed a, 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 you know a, a completely contrary to all political orthodoxy um but that's where we that's how far we've come um i don't think expecting shareholders to do it is, is enough Richard, I imagine Americans talk about little else apart from dirishism. Uh, well, they don't talk about it at all. But uh, other than that, yes. Um, the situation in the US is different again because in the same way that, uh, as Larry was saying about the, uh, the MPs' expenses muddying the waters here, of course you had the collapse of the American auto industry at the same time. And in the, in the popular imagination, uh, 
the, the the bank bailouts and those are all lumped into one because the they're all taxpayer money. Yeah, it's all taxpayer money bailing out an industry which had you know gone to the dogs, uh, and so they just see you know one lump of money rather than individuating the the different industries. Uh, so so there is that uh, and. I, I don't. I, I think the time passed. Uh, Rahm Emanuel uh, said at the beginning of the Obama administration that you, you should never waste a good crisis, and I, I, I fear the Obama administration did in this case. Uh, but they were in this terrible position where they needed the banks to operate to avoid uh, the credit crunch, and so they, they were left with no choice but to bail them out. They and took quite a softly, softly approach towards the banks, they did. didn't they, Obama yeah. administration? It came in, had the opportunity to take a very tough line straight yeah. away, didn't do so. I mean, I think people like Larry Summers would have, you know, would have said, take it quite easy on these people, go very softly on them. And the result has been that the banks have actually done okay, they've done very well out of that system, but it's left Obama in a very exposed political position because his poll ratings have gone down. There has been a sense there that, you know, Wall Street has had it very, very easy under, under an administration that people th- expected more of, and I think that's why we've now started to get a lot more populist rhetoric coming out, at, coming out of the White House. Look at the sequencing, though. I mean, he basically had to get health care through, um, and I think it's no coincidence that um, we didn't start to see the really harsh rhetoric on the banks until he so could see light at the end of that tunnel. Um, Jill, we're still just over it. We're only just over a year from Lehman Brothers having fallen over. 15 months, I yeah. think. Yeah, and... I mean, is that your sense? Is that the moment a crisis has passed, the moment of sort of politicians being able to use a crisis? Has that passed as well? It, well, it, it does feel like it. It's interesting, this whole collapse of Lehman, because I was, I, I was at a drinks party last night where everybody was discussing how the former Lehman Brothers bankers in London are all ecstatic because they now work for Nomura <laughs> and they're getting great bonuses. You know, I mean, you know, it does feel as if, particularly if you were one of those, if you worked for one of those banks that went bust, actually you're laughing in some ways in that you worked at Lehman, you're now part of this fantastic Japanese empire, or the, of course, if you're on Wall Street, you're part of Barclays. And Bear Stearns, I mean, who remembers Bear Stearns? But of course, you know, that bank went bust too, and those people are all still in employment and laughing all the way to the bank. On now to something altogether sweeter, or perhaps that should be bittersweet. This week, the board of Cadbury accepted a £12 billion bid by Kraft, meaning the American food giant could complete its take over the 180-year-old British confectioner. Dan, was it always inevitable that one day... The, the good people, Bourneville, would fold? Um, with hindsight, it's looking increasingly that way. I mean, um, the behaviour of the uh, chairman, Roger Carr, who has a long track record in selling British businesses down the river, um, the <laughs> chief executive, um, Todd Stitzer, who has an enormous um, payout and large pension um, that will get triggered when he leaves, um, and the behaviour of some of the biggest shareholders. I just went back and had a look at um, some of the things that uh, Franklin Templeton, one of the key um, shareholders, had been saying. And actually, weeks ago, it was saying, you know, that we're in here for a quick turn. You know, we think this is an M&A opportunity and we're going to make a, a fast buck. Y- you look at all those things now and you think how naive we all were to be swept along by the rhetoric from Cadbury over the last few weeks where they were kind of tucking at the heartstrings and and, 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 and cozying up to the, to the, to the Guardian and the Observer and telling us how they loved our the fact that we supported their, you know, Quaker family values and things. And, and with hindsight, it was all rubbish. How much of this was jiggery-pokery by the hedge funds? 
hedge funds again played a role. Um, they were 15% of the register that surged about 25% yesterday. The key thing, though, was that there were no really big um, uh, British institutional shareholders to stand in the way. The last time a, success was, a, a, a successful defence was mounted was the London Stock Exchange. And there, um, Clara first benefited from a number of institutions that stood with her, and they just weren't there in Cadbury. Richard, I mean, you want, you want our base in Washington. I mean, all this sentimentalism about a Quaker firm from nearly 200 years ago, when it's actually been headed by American for some time, who doesn't talk about Quaker values that much, but talks about unmet beverage requirements and mouthfeel and all this other nonsense. I mean, do you think that we're, we're too sentimental and we're too willing to invest brands with the kind of values they don't have anymore? Well, I, I think it's in the case of if you're the American company buying the British company, then you obviously don't really care too much about that. But, but if it were the other way around, if it, if it were a British or European or, God forbid, Chinese company buying, say, Hershey, then believe it, you would hear it all over the media. And the Americans are extremely nationalistic. Uh, and uh, so, yes, if, if, if the things were reversed, you would uh, the same thing would be playing out. So it's pa- patriotism that you... Yeah. Yeah. But, but Larry, shareholder capitalism doesn't really allow for Quaker values, does it? No, shareholder capitalism is shareholder capitalism. I mean, the two don't really mix at all. Um, and so as soon as Cadbury's is a listed company and has to do 15 to 20%... I mean, anybody who believed all that stuff about Quaker values needed their head examined. I mean, it was quite obvious they were just using that to get the price up and to get a better price for the company. And that as soon as they got the price they were looking for... They would just sell the workforce down the river, which is what they've done. I mean, I remember speaking to a shareholder on September the 7th, or whenever it was, that this a, a deal first broke. And um, Cadbury has, for as long as I can remember, been the bid target. You know, everybody's, you know, you have your little list of bid targets, these analysts drop every year. It's been on it from what I can make out for quite a long time. And this guy just said to me, thank goodness it's here, let's get the price up. I mean, you know, I, I, I don't think the city's about sentimentality, to be honest. I mean, I'm sure that, you know, it's interesting. You know, it's clear that the Cadbury people are feeling... Um, are feeling that they fought very hard and, 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 that, and that they had no option but to throw the towel in. But it, it's interesting that, that, that the Capri board has had to give in, if, if that's the way you want to look upon it, at a price that was much lower, really, than many institutions in the UK wanted. And that's clearly, as Dan was talking about, the influence of the hedge funds on all of this. It's certainly been sold for a, below its real value, hasn't it? I mean, it's, it's, I'd have Well, people it. were talking about more money than this. Did I mean, you, £9 or whatever. Ten, yeah, did you agree with the £10 a share thing, Dan? Uh, I think it was um, an, an, uh, an ambitious target, but that what you would ex- what you'd hope and expect a chief exec to be aiming for. I mean, I think there needs to be a big premium for, for, for a control, you you know, it, it, once you've sold your Cadbury shares as a, as, a, uh, as, a, as a shareholder, you don't get to come back in, in, in a few years' time if the market picks up or the economy recovers and say, actually, no, we want a bit more. It's a once and for all deal. And as a result, you have to, you have to go a long way beyond the undisturbed market price, I think, to justify a bid. The other thing I'd just say, I mean, I, you know, I've, I've come around to being a lot more sceptical about foreign takeovers in recent years for the drip-drip effect. I've just seen far too many go, you know, one at a time. I, don't, I mean, I don't think Cadbury is, is in enormous loss in and of itself but when you put it in context with the rest of British industry that's gone I think it is a worry and the other thing is I think we're not seeing business formation at the bottom end again I would be less concerned about the unravelling of big uh, old industrial conglomerates if we were seeing lots of feisty young startups um, um, float on the market uh, every month and, and, and a sense that you know there was a good there was a good churn but we're not I mean with the you know the, the industrial names that drop off the FTSE are replaced increasingly by sort of um, uh, 
uh, foreign listings and mining companies that are largely overseas, and, and, and it just isn't being filled in with, with new growth. Yeah, I mean, the theory, the theory is that, you know, what happens is you get some new thrusting management into a company and it, shake, it it, <coughs> shake it all up and it makes the whole manufacturing sector, industrial sector, a lot more vibrant, all these sort of, you know, 1980s buzzwords. But if you look at what's actually happened to manufacturing output in the UK, it's now back to the levels it was at in 1992. You know, we've, we've, what we are seeing relentlessly over many decades is the hollowing out of British manufacturing and you have to ask yourself does this takeover sort of takeover of Cadbury's by Kraft add to that or, or, or make it less likely and obviously it makes it more likely that we're going to see a further diminution of the British industrial base and a, a higher concentration of our resources and effort into going into the financial services sector. Jill I can't think of a single big British owned firm in the square mile we were talking about this we've got um but the thing is you talk about british owned and i'm sorry to be such an old bore about this but cabri was already 40 percent owned by u.s shareholders before this bid happened so it's lost its independence maybe but it was i mean to call it british is a well, is a difficult thing i'm head, sorry to be pedantic about this here, it was headquartered here okay okay so if that's how we're going to define it then the reality well, it, does is, make a, it does make a difference okay so the reality is here in the uk i mean we've really got the, the, the banks that are kind of left standing after the financial crisis are Barclays and HSBC here. Now, you could argue Barclays has really transformed itself by taking over Lehman Brothers and is now a big player, in, a bigger player in the square mile than ever before. We could spend hours debating about whether or not we think that's a good thing. HSBC is the other one. It's headquartered here for now, but on mm. February the 1st, its chief executive moves to Hong Kong. So I don't quite know what that tells us. OK, on that note, time to wrap things up. You'll find links to everything we discuss on our blog at guardian.co.uk slash the business. Our producer's Ben Green, I'm Aditya Chakraborty, and that was The Business. The Business.